Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. In this podcast, we featured three featured storytellers intermixed with a community story slam. We are rebooting in our 12th season by returning to themes from our first season. Our storytellers share stories inspired by the theme, coming of age, stories of growing pains and rites of passage. Grow up. It's story time. Hello? Yeah. Good evening, everyone. What a wonderful band. That was great. Um, My name is Nick Warden. I am a board member of Story Story Night, and I have been for approximately four years now. My term as a board member is coming to an end. But before I go, I just wanted to uh, say how important being a board member for Story Story Night has has been for me, how much it's meant to me. I really think that, I, I personally believe that organizations like Story Story Night are really important for building community and also for giving a voice to people within the community that otherwise may not have one. And if you share that belief, I just wanted to let you know that um, the board is currently looking for new membership. And if anybody is interested, we'd love to speak to you about that. The best way to get in touch with us is at the email address board at storystorynight.com. And with that, I'd like to introduce our MC for the evening, the talented, the incomparable Jody Eichelberger. Thank you. I'm bringing Nick back for just a moment. Oh, by the way, that's Bored, B-O-A-R-D, not B-O-R-E-D. Although, if you've been to those meetings, I, I mean, let's just say I'm not as entertaining at those meetings as I try to be here. But I think one thing that Nick didn't mention is that he has finished his term. Um, so he's been with us serving on the board for the last four years. And so this is his last official event. As you can see by um, our historical fundraiser here, um, sometimes we've had elaborate gifts for outgoing board members, <laughs> trips, uh, plane tickets, dinners, um, but this year we have no money. So all I can give you is a handshake and a thank you. <laughs> and thank you to Afrosonics. I don't think we have ever had the stage so full before with musicians. Wonderful. And boy, that uh, keyboard is taking me back to a rite of passage. That's a, it's got a special, uh, what is that called? Duct tape. Duct tape runs the world. Good. Dio, welcome. Thank you for bringing your group here. I can hear my voice rattling in the drums. That's pretty exciting. Oh, is it off now? Okay, now I'm just here. I was feeling like a ventriloquist. Thank you for having us. Have you, uh, have you experienced or the group experienced some kind of growing pains or, or rite of passage? Every time. Every- <laughs> I'm just kidding. Every show. <laughs> Every show is a growing pain? Yeah. We have uh, the, the band sort of worldwide has about 150 members in it. And oh. so. Every show is a bit of a growing pain. It's like, who's going to be here for this one? Okay, okay, all right. 
this this person's been with the band for about six years. This person's been for the band. Like this is this is my daughter Phaedra, by the way. This is her very first show with us. Wow. So she's experiencing the growing pains tonight. Yeah. And a rite of passage, her first and, show. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So awesome. Cool. Thank you so much. Nice to have you here, Phaedra. Uh, as you can see behind me, historically, so this is our 12th birthday, if you can believe it. Uh, we have not been together with people on our birthday since our ninth birthday, so tonight feels pretty special. And uh, yes, yay! In fact, uh, famously, uh, we were shut down right before our 10th birthday, and um, the show moved to my living room, and we broadcast over Zoom, and Jump was so sweet, they sent a cake to my house. And I was able to present the cake to the audience. And it said, rock and roll with stories or something like that. And I wanted the audience to be able to see that. So I tipped the cake forward to my computer camera and basically almost dumped it on the computer. I caught it with my hand. You could no longer read it, but uh, <laughs> made some pretty nice footage. Um, <laughs> we also want to thank uh, our season sponsor tonight, which is Boise Group. Thank you. And we want to thank our season subscribers. Raise your hand if you're a season subscriber. There's some spattered around. Thank you. Oh, someone's lifting someone else's. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, so this time of year has been when we kind of do a birthday celebration. We invite people to add an extra gift. Um, historically, the flagship season has kind of uh, shored us up for the summer season because we would typically uh, get more in ticket income during the flagship that kind of then take us through the summer when we lose a little bit of money. Um, actually, some of the hate emails we've gotten this year when we relaunched our public show, one of them said, oh, so story, story nights, profit over people, huh? And I wanted to say, listen, uh, the, we, make, we would lose less money if we didn't do the show. Like, <laughs> there's, there's no profit here. Uh, <laughs> we would do better just to stay in my living room, I guess. Uh, so tonight is a night that uh, if you are able and interested, we've made it very simple for you to text story story is one word to 44321. Oh, we have some people up here already. I have a feeling some of these names want to be read aloud. Uh, <laughs> the first one being Jody Eichelberger, uh, <laughs> which was uh, me testing the system. Look how far in advance I start working on these shows for you people. That, that was eight days ago. No one in this town prepares anything eight days in advance. Uh, anonymous, a day ago. <laughs> Ann Anderson, thank you. Uh, D's Nuts, uh, I believe that was this evening. Uh, 23 minutes ago, actually, the screen tells me. And our good friend Bob Haycock, who was uh, one of the original founding board members and is here tonight as well. Thank you, Bob. So uh, this is, we are also going to be part of Idaho Gives and we're launched, that campaign is launched as well. Um, but there, that platform isn't quite, we had a thermometer a few years ago, um, which was super exciting to watch the thermometer level rise as people were contributing to Story Story. Um, however, I felt it was a little triggering this time around. I didn't really want to see a thermometer rising, so. 
uh, now we have these friendly bubbles that pop up. So if someone texts story story to 44321 in the next couple of minutes, um, we'll see their little bubble appear up there. Um, no fireworks or anything, just a, just a little bubble and a, and a shaft of sunlight. Uh, it's going away now, though, because we're going to send the screen into the, into the heavens. Uh, we're using technology tonight, folks. And with Story Story, uh, another thing about our history is it can be a bumpy ride. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Um, we may end up owing people money by the end of the night. We're not, <laughs> we're not entirely sure. I think you can enter a negative amount in our system. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure how that works. <laughs> there it goes. All right, so tonight, uh, Story Story Night is true stories told live on stage, curated stories intermixed with a community story slam. The community story slam is you. So oh, right over here is our story slam booth and our story slam volunteers. They're there to assist you if you want to write your name down and stick your name in the hat for a, f uh, well, it's not a hat. It's, a, it's our Boise group box. And uh, you will have a chance to tell a five-minute story on our theme throughout the evening. And the theme is coming of age, stories of growing pains, and rites of passage. Uh, yes, this, this is uh, velvet. Uh, would you like to touch it? We just had these reserved seats over here for Christine. So, Christine, if you're not sitting in your reserved seats, there's five right there in the front. Good. All right. Um, so, in our, at least in my culture, there aren't, seem, there don't seem to be that many rites of passage. Um, growing pains. Uh, oh, right. This is a costume, so the pockets don't work. <laughs> Um, I did actually have growing pains, literal growing pains, as a child. Uh, apparently my legs were growing so quickly that I would experience pain and couldn't sleep at night. And my mom would come in and rub the back of my legs and kind of soothe me until I could go to sleep. So those were pains that I experienced growing up. Um, but rites of passage, I mean, some of them I kind of missed that I think other people had that I didn't have. And one of them is I used to have dark hair. And as a young lad, um, that dark hair kind of got a little noticeable, that kind of a hairy upper lip. And it seemed a little too young to have a hairy upper lip. But my dad and I didn't seem to have the relationship where I could say, Dad, tell me about shaving. Like, how does it work? What do I do? Um, so one time in the bathroom, I had gotten kind of fed up of getting teased at school about having a mustache. And, and so I opened the, the vanity in the bathroom, and my mom had a pink razor that was sitting in there. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll try this. And so I took the pink razor and just kind of <laughs> which, no, it didn't feel very good. Um, and then I was, and then I thought, oh, wow, I did it. And I had this very white upper lip, and uh, 
I, you know, I wasn't like, wonder if, is anyone gonna notice? Like, did I just do it? Like, was that my, have I, am I done shaving? <laughs> and, but I went upstairs and I think I kind of just thought I would glide through the living room, pass through. My mom immediately is like, <gasps> what did you do? Oh, and she was kind of excited. She's like, you shaved, you shaved. Uh, I was totally embarrassed. Um, and I still never did get that shaving tutorial. In fact, eventually I graduated to an electric shaver. When I went away to college, I was using it. Shave, 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 shave. And uh, I never thought about where the whiskers had to go. Uh, so I never emptied my electric shaver. And I got pretty far into the term before the thing was kind of like I was like, come on, this is new. What's wrong with this thing? And I popped it and a cake brick of stubble kind of just went Oh, you're supposed to clean these things. Huh, interesting to know. Another rite of passage, however, that males at least often go through, and, and I did, is uh, your voice changing. And it was pretty dramatic for me because I've always been a singer. And as a kid, I sang a lot, and it's our 12th birthday, and I remember when I was 12 years old, I was in the school musical, and it was, uh, for many years, I played a blue psalm book. I went to a Christian school. <laughs> I guess I don't need to say that after telling you that I was played a blue psalm book. Um, his name was Salty with a P. Uh, but this musical was the first one that I got to not be Salty the songbook. Instead, I was Charity Church Mouse. Now, my school couldn't quite handle that a male was playing Charity. So they took some license with it, and I became Charlie Church Mouse. And Charlie Church Mouse was a gospel singer, and I sang really high. Like, re I don't know what those notes were, but they were really high. And, uh, and after the show, I don't know who was in the audience, and I don't even know how valid of an offer this was, but someone said, you know, we've been considering recording, but we've never thought about using a 12-year-old because it seemed kind of risky. But would you come into our studio and lay down a demo track for whatever it is they were working on? And I was so excited, like, woo, I've made it. I'm going into the studio and recording a demo track. And the song that we decided to use for the demo, and so it must have, maybe it was kind of a Christian music organization or something, because the song we were going to use is an old one called In His Time. Uh, this might be painful. Uh, it was like, in his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. And so I go back to record this, and that was the week. <laughs> I've sung this song so many times, and I get to the, the verse that's, Lord, to you my life I bring. May each song I have to sing be to you a lovely thing in your time. And what it sounds like is, Lord, to you my life I bring. May each song I have 
to sing be to you a lovely thing. It was not lovely. It was not. And there was nothing I could do about it. And I used to sing regularly at our church services. Um, <laughs> it was a cassette time of age, cassette tapes, and there was a store called Christian Supply on Fairview Avenue that had a whole selection, mostly by people like Amy Grant or mm, Steve Green, uh, Michael W. Smith. I can't remember things I memorized two weeks ago, but I'm remembering all of these lyrics and all these names. Uh, so I would sing regularly with these cassettes, but as soon as that happened, I did not sing a note for anybody silent for months. And it was actually very sweet, because um, it was about a year later, so I must have turned 13 already. My dad, apparently, unbeknownst to me, went to Christian Supply and selected one of these cassette tape accompaniment tracks and very casually just kind of walked up and said, well, you think you might want to try this again? And so I popped the cassette in, and uh, you know it wasn't. It was no longer in his time. It was now in his time. Uh, but I kind of got into that. I was like, oh, <laughs> hey, there's more things I can do with this. All right. Um, as you find out with other things when you turn 13. Uh, but most of those things I never shared. So. My voice I could share. We do have some people that I want to share with you tonight, and those are our featured storytellers. So I'm going to bring them up onto our stage in reverse order. And one of the things that's fun about tonight is we're kind of bookending our storytellers with uh, storytellers who were there at this theme, coming of age, at the Linen Building, over right over there in 2011, and they're back again 11 years later to share tonight. So the first one of that is a featured storyteller who, I'm, I'm not sure if he's spoken at Story Story since then. Um, it seems likely he should have, but anyway, he's here tonight. Please welcome Ben Kemper. And he gets to choose his chair, whatever you like. And our next featured storyteller is new to Story Story Night, but her story is rooted in nearly 4,000 years of tradition. Please welcome Elizabeth Sonerson. But now, coming straight to our microphone, she went up to the Slammer booth way back in April of 2011, just spontaneously thought, hey, I have an idea about coming of age. She put her name and her ticket in that box and ended up on the stage. And now here she is again, 11 years later. Please welcome to our microphone, Donna Vasquez. <laughs> I never would have thought. Okay, so there's a lot of you in here that inspired me, and I'm going to let you know that, too. Um, my story made me reflect back on what 
inspired me and in my coming of age story. Um, my grandmother, when I was a child, one of my earliest memories is watching my grandmother at the end of the day sitting in the living room with the sun setting behind her head as she took out her low bun and unfurled this long braid and let it hang at the side of her shoulder. And she proceeded to unfurl this beautiful salt and pepper, silver hair. And then the sun came behind her and it looked like a halo. And all I kept thinking was, oh my god, my grandmother is beautiful. Beautiful. And that's, that's an early memory of her. So when I turned 21, my first gray hair exposed itself to my hairstylist. <laughs> and I was so excited because I wanted the silver hair. I showed it to a boyfriend, and without my permission, he effing pulled it out. <laughs> I was so mad. And then I thought, wait a minute, there's that saying that I've heard people say in my culture, they say every kana you pull out, a kana is a silver hair. For every kana that you pull out, two are going to grow in its place. So I'm like, all right, dude, you helped speed this process up for me. Thank you very much. And I was OK with it. But it took me years. And so here I am in my early 30s. And I'm married now. And the husband says to me, you're getting old hair. And I'm like, what the heck? I like this gray hair, but I didn't say anything, and I was a people pleaser, and that's what I was in my early 30s, okay? A different person from now. And I went off and I dyed my hair to a stylist. She, she was so happy to color my hair. She did it a deep burgundy, reddish color, and the gray was so resistant that she had to reapply it and reapply it. So the grays wanted to stay, too. <laughs> and then, Mid-40s, I divorced that husband, and I ditched the dye. And when I ditched the dye, um, another man came into my life, and with his support, I was allowed, you know, not allowed, but it felt freeing to let the silver come in. And I was surprised that I only got one negative comment from one family member. Don't let yourself go. And uh, <laughs> no te vas a dejar. And so, oh no, Vasquez, you're not doing that, are you? And I'm like, yes, I am. And I asked my cousins who dye their hair, and they're like, oh, we're not ready for that. We're not ready. We are not ready. Do you know that letting your hair go silver is an inside job? It is what's going on in your mind, in what you're thinking, and how you see people perceive you about being invisible, about aging, about dying. And so I accepted the fact that you know, I wanted to be silver and owning it and then telling the story. After I told that story in 2011, people that were in the audience would pull me and see me in the, out on the street and they would thank me for telling that story. And, <laughs> and I ended up saying out loud, I wish I had a dollar for every compliment that I've gotten in all these years, because it was year after year. I mean, I'm, t I'm telling you, on a daily basis, I would get pulled in the grocery store, I'd be walking down the street, a lady stopped, pulled it in the side of the road, said, can I take your picture? I want to show my mom that silver hair is cool. Aww. 
And I'm like, okay. And then I had hairstylists stop me and they go, can I investigate your stripes and your, your, you know, I wanna redo that. I'm getting a bunch of people, younger people coming in and they want silver hair, but they want it to look natural. I'm like, wow, what do you charge for that? <laughs> and I get it for free. And so it was just, I wish I had a dollar for every compliment. And I actually joined some social media groups that supported women that were thinking about going gray or who were already gray. And let me tell you, a lot of people get negative comments, unsolicited negative comments from all people that they don't even know and people that they know that are closest to them. And it's a real tough inside job. It's, it's a lot of women stop and re-diet again or can't go, with, can't go through with it. And it's an inside job. And so with that process, you end up owning your authenticity. You start to, you get to choose how you want to look. You get to choose your aging process and how you want to age. And I started, so I asked on social media, um, how can I earn money with this, legally, <laughs> with this silver hair? And people said, well, you should model or you should do this. And so I did. I started to model. And I got gigs here. I've been in three local commercials in Boise since then. Um, I played a 50-something-year-old bride <laughs> who survived cancer, and there she was getting married. Hello. I was in a 67 Mustang waving, you know. It was fabulous. It really was fun. And then I ended up going with a model management company and somebody saw my face and COVID hit and I ended up getting more jobs in Portland. Underwear. <laughs> I model underwear. <laughs> because of my silver hair. Because now all of these businesses, women-owned businesses, they want inclusivity. They want to embrace the aging boomers. Yay! <laughs> So now I'm, you know, um, and I ended up, uh, just last week I was in Portland doing another underwear for the third time. With that same company, they keep bringing me back. I've done face oil for a company in, uh, that's based out of New York and Par uh, San Francisco and Paris. Another uh, company from New York that shot in Portland. Um, another one based out of Portland that's a national exercise uh, business and so they were selling their online exercise and so I did a full day shoot like they made me look schwitzy and all that good stuff so it was fun and I've m earned more than all those compliments more than a dollar for all of those compliments and in May you will be seeing me um, in an ad for a major athletic company. I can't say names yet. I'm just gonna tell you that I just did it. <laughs> and so, own, your, own yourself and keep doing what feels good to you and all of that will come. It will come because they want the authenticity and they want you to be you. So, I'm doing it. <laughs> So I wear my hair in two buns and I unfurl it naturally. <laughs>
I get the natural curls. <laughs> See, you tell a story at Story Story Night and you get famous. All right, solidarity. I haven't learned to use it yet. <laughs> All right, we, uh, in the spirit of Donna and her slamming, we are going to have a slammer right now, I believe, if we can have the slammer box head over here. Um, but actually, it could be interesting, too, to have a show of hands. Are there people in the audience tonight that were at this show at the Linen Building in 2011? Look at that. Oh, my gosh. That is so great. Welcome back. Oh, another one over there. All right. Come on over and let's see who we got. So, oh, a whole bunch. Wow, you guys are all got growing pains to tell us about. Excellent. Now remember, you have five minutes on a theme. <laughs> well, he was just on stage and we're gonna bring him back. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, soon to be former board member, Nick Warden. <laughs> He did say it was on his bucket list as a board member to share stories at Story Story Night, so he's just gonna keep them coming. Wow. I've never put my name in. Never, this is the first time you first put your name time, in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. All right, five minutes. Well, hello again. Um, so, in late March of 2020, right as the lockdown hit, I made the wonderful choice to change jobs. I'm an attorney, and I left the security of the Attorney General's office and transitioned to a private law firm, seeking uh, new opportunities. And over the course of the next several months, that law firm started to break into pieces and dissolve. And um, we were all working remotely at the time. And I have two small children. At the time, they were two and four years old. Childcare was a struggle because of daycare closures. And my wife and I both work full time. And I was working out of a, an impromptu home office in my son's bedroom next to his crib. And one day, I got a call from a stranger a woman who I didn't know, and she said, I'm looking for Nick Warden. And I said, this is he. And she said, I know your father. And I said, okay, so do I. <laughs> and she said, I have some difficult news. And I said, okay. And she said, your father is in the hospital. He's had a stroke. Not only that, but the woman that he's been living with recently passed away. And he doesn't know this because she passed away within 48 hours of him being checked into the hospital. Not only that, but her father owns the property, well, it would, be the, would, would become the owner of the property um, as the beneficiary under his daughter's estate and he despises your father. 
So he is going to be moving forward with eviction of your father. And we need to know what to do with all of his stuff. Um, it turns out that this woman was actually a very close friend of the woman that had passed away. It also turns out that my father and I at that time were estranged. We hadn't spoken to one another in approximately three years because my father and my mother had gone through a very messy divorce later in life and he and I had a falling out over his conduct during that proceeding. So I just kind of paused and said, you know, I thank you for all this information. I need to give this some thought. So we hung up the phone. She left me her number. And I sat and I thought. And then I picked up the phone again and called my brother. He lives in San Francisco. And I explained to him what about the call I had just received. And we decided that we would initiate contact with my father, even though neither of us had spoken to him for many years. So we called him on his cell phone, and surprisingly, he answered. And he was in the hospital. His speech was impaired as a result of the stroke. And eventually, we found out from his treating physician that he was lucky to be alive. It was a fairly significant stroke. And the first words that I told my father in over three years were that the, his girlfriend at the time had passed away and that he was going to be evicted from where he was living in the middle of a pandemic. So I asked him whether he wanted my help. And he's never asked me for anything, ever. But in that moment, he did ask me for my help. And despite the problems that I had had with him over the past few years, I agreed to help him. So I put my work on pause and initiated the process of getting him sorted out with um, Medicaid. It was extremely difficult to find a bed for him during a pandemic in a, in a facility that could house him with his medical needs, especially since he couldn't fund it privately. Um, but after calling approximately 25 locations, somebody ended up having a bed. It was extremely complicated moving him in because of all the COVID restrictions, but eventually we did get him moved in. I was able to retain pro bono legal counsel for him who represented him in the eviction proceeding with his um, former girlfriend's father, and she was able to stave off the eviction until he we were able to transition him into his new location. And eventually he largely recovered from the stroke although it took quite a bit of time. And the whole time I was going through this, I was just having these really intense feelings of, of guilt. You know, even though I knew it wasn't my fault, a part of me was thinking, you know, if I had just sort of swallowed my anger and maintained contact with him, maybe he wouldn't be in this predicament. And I had a lot of rage directed at him for allowing himself to get into this situation, and just a lot of sadness about what was happening. And I think, you know, the reason I bring up this story tonight is because on the theme of coming of age, even though this particular circumstance was extraordinary, I think a lot of people, especially people my age or around my age, have this experience for the first time where a person on whom they've relied most of their life 
is suddenly dependent upon them. And you have to sort of grapple with the circumstance and meet the challenge. And, um, you know, my father and I haven't retained contact once he was stable, our estrangement um, continued. But I am glad that I did get to reconnect with him for that period of time, if for no other reason than to be sure that he was okay. Um, that's my story. Thanks. Thank you, Nick. As you know, as our lawyer at Story Story, you drafted a very wordy release form that's right over here at the Story Story Night booth. So if you would make your way over there so that we can have the rights to your slam, that would be very helpful. Um, reap your rewards. I remember as a, as a child, always wanting to beat my dad at a race. You know, like, come on, dad, let's see who gets to the top of the stairs first. Let's see who gets across the park first. Let's see who gets to that second car on the left first. And then we were camping one time at Ponderosa State Park, which we did almost every August, and it came time for that race, and that was the time that I beat him, and I wish I hadn't. <laughs> we're going to go to our next featured storyteller. Um, maybe this is a little bit of a race for this storyteller, too. Um, we're super excited to have this new story on our stage tonight, sandwiched between our historic stories. Uh, please welcome Elizabeth Sonerson. So I had a student tell me this really bad joke last month. He said, what do you call someone who's just a little bit Jew? And I knew the answer. He said, it's Jewish. And he was like, I don't get it. <laughs> His grandfather had told him the story. It's not really a joke, though. It's actually more a description of Jews in the diaspora today. Because there are two types of Jews. There are Jews who are religiously observant to some extent, and there are people who are just culturally Jewish. Well, I was raised Jew-ish. My mother is Jewish from a conservative family in New York. My father is from an Episcopalian family in North Idaho. When my parents were getting ready to get married, my grandmother asked my father if he would consider converting to Judaism. And my father said, why would I go from being a non-observant Christian to being a non-observant Jew? <laughs> so I grew up dabbling in Judaism. I sometimes went to services with other Jewish families. Uh, our family lit Hanukkah candles. Um, I went to a Rosh Hashanah service with someone, we always had a Passover Seder. One year we went to New York and we had our Passover Seder with my grandparents and my Ukrainian great-grandmother who didn't want to eat at the table with us because my grandfather was doing it wrong. <laughs> so I wonder what she would have thought of our Seders at our family that were led by 
my father, the non-Christian, non-Jew. And we always invited people who were not Jewish because we wanted to give them the experience. So I turned 13 and I knew people who were having bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, but we weren't members of a synagogue. We were members of the Ethical Society and that's where we went on Sundays uh, for non-religious services. So 13 and no bar or bat mitzvah for me. A bar or bat mitzvah happens when you're 13. It simply means, bar mitzvah means son of the covenant. And a Jewish boy who is 13 is automatically a bar mitzvah. Um, but it's celebrated. Boys study, they read the Torah, they have a party. Girls, bat mitzvah is only 100 years old. The first bat mitzvah was Judith Kaplan in March of 1922. So I went off to college, the University of Montana in Missoula, where it was strange to be Jewish in a place where there were not really a lot of Jews. So I looked for the Jews. And we tried to figure out how to be Jewish out in the world without our parents. So I started lighting some Hanukkah candles. <clears throat> and then my junior year of college, someone said, hey, let's have a Passover Seder. I know how to do that. I was the only one who had a Passover Haggadah, which is the book that has how you do a Passover Seder. So a trip to Kinko's, and I was set to lead my first <laughs> ritual observance. And then I graduated from college and got my first job teaching, 1994, South Texas, South Texas, on the Rio Grande Valley, in, uh, on the Rio Grande River, in a community that was Hispanic at a school that was 100% Hispanic minus three students. And again, I was a fish out of water, so I looked for the Jews. Our counselor was married to a Jewish man, and they invited me to attend services with them at their synagogue for Rosh Hashanah. First year teaching is rough. It's exhausting. It's mentally draining. I had no energy to do anything, but you don't want to sit at home all the time. So what are you going to do? You go to synagogue. Before I knew it, I was there at least once a week. I went to services, special events, uh, classes. And as I did, I started to learn the Hebrew blessings, the prayers by ear. And then I decided, well, I want to learn a little bit more. So I ordered a teach yourself to read Hebrew kit. Came with flashcards. The first letter you want to learn is the Lamed. It's really tall. It sticks out. And the L sound you can listen for. So I figured out there's Shalom. And then I figured out how God is written. And over time, a couple words at a time, a couple letters at a time, I taught myself to decode Hebrew. And then that first year, at the end of the year, the rabbi said, hey, would you like to teach religious school next year? Why not? <laughs> so I jumped in. I worked hard. I stayed one week ahead of my religious school class. 
I studied with the rabbi. I was there a couple times a week now. And the rabbi said, hey, would you like to have your bat mitzvah? I was 26 years old. And I said, bat mitzvah? That's 13. And he said, no, you can do it now. Why not? I'll give it a try. So I worked with the rabbi. I learned to read from the Torah. The Torah doesn't have vowels. You know, English has vowels. Well, Hebrew doesn't have vowels. They're little dots and little dashes above the letters. And the Torah is written without vowels. So you really have to kind of memorize your Torah portion. So again, I met with the rabbi. He recorded it on a cassette tape for me. Cassette tapes seem to be a theme tonight. And I listened to the cassette tape, and I memorized my Torah portion. And then we sat and we decided, well, what are you going to do? You have to give a speech. OK, well, what matters to me? Well, what matters to me is there are not a lot of women in the Torah. And I'd like to talk about a woman. So I picked a section with Miriam. And then I had to write a sermon, a drosh, on my Torah portion. And I really kept focusing on the idea that I was doing more than I had to. I didn't have to do this. So there's a Zimbabwean saying, if you can speak, you can sing. If you can walk, you can dance. And that became the central part. I can do this. I can do more. We had to special order from people that the rabbi knew a preprint copy of an egalitarian prayer book because there wasn't one. And we used that for my bat mitzvah. And so in 1997, I read from the Torah and I gave my talk and I became a bat mitzvah. And then I came to Boise. And I joined Congregation of Havath Beth Israel, the synagogue here. And then I became a lay leader with the congregation. And then I got married there. And then my kids, when they turned 13, had their bar and bat mitzvahs. And so I went from growing up Jewish through this rite of passage to become fully Jewish. Thank you, Elizabeth. That was so great. Um, she actually came, I was thinking of rites of passage and it was one of those instances where there was some work curating the show and I called the rabbi and said, hey, you guys are real good at rites of passage. Do you have anybody there that might have a story? And Elizabeth's like, well, I don't have a story. I just had a bat mitzvah when I was 26. That's it. That's like, I think you do. And boy, does she. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, let's bring our screen down and see what's going on with Story Story 44321. And while we're doing that, um, yeah, Afrosonics, do you want to do a little bit of underscoring under my sponsor message? Uh, it doesn't do. have to be. Yeah, there we go. That's, be an honor. Yeah, there we go. 
the Boise Group has been here through the growing pains of Boise real estate. We are a small, carefully curated group of deeply experienced real estate agents who live and work in Boise's most Boise neighborhoods. We are serving the world's greatest clients and are here to guide you through the rite of passage of home ownership with exceptional professional real estate skills in a 100% Boise style. <laughs> and that music was 100% Boise style, I think. Thank you, Todd. Yes, it resolved like all things in Boise do. Oh, look, at here we go. People, that, did you see the bubble friendly fly? Uh, I just coined that. It's called the friendly fly when it, when it slides across. All right, thank you. Hey, there's all new names up here. Thank you so much, Nicole and Jill and Elvaria. Hey, that's a familiar looking last name. Uh, Lacey and Cassandra, thank you for being a part of our birthday celebrations. I also want to point out a classy looking lady who's sitting back here at a table all to herself. This is our original host and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. And she was involved in coming up with these themes that we are reusing this year and was the host on That Night in Question. We also want to thank Jump for providing some celebratory cake for our birthday tonight. And they're cutting that back there. It's available to you at intermission. Afrosonics is going to play. And we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Thank you. Afrosonics, Thanks. the upstanders. Thank you. Standards, oh, how you do? You stand up for me, I stand up for you. No matter how you do, you stand up for me, I stand up for you. We are the upstanders. We are the upstanders. With open arms, we are the upstanders. We are the upstanders. We are the upstanders. With open arms, we are the upstanders. Yeah, we are the upstanders. 
Big Spanders here with the youth, yeah, next generation. Really sick about purpose, dedication. I'm driven by love, my motivation. Uh, yeah. Uh. Uh. Hey, come yeah. on. We weren't meant to be the same. Seeing how we're unique is a part of the game. This courage just to you. So let's raise our voice and decide what to do. Upstanders with open arms, we are the upstanders for you. No matter with open arms, we are the upstanders. Thank you. And again, that performance of Open Arms Dance is at the Morrison Center this Thursday evening at 7 p.m. Uh, featuring the dancers from Open Arms as well as Afrosonics. Uh, I'm planning to go. I hope you can be there too. I have been told that there are a few people that don't understand what it means to text story story to 44321. So here's a really quick tutorial. On your device, this what looks like this, you should have a text app. If you open that text app, and you hit the right button, it'll say, who do you want to send it to? And you're going to type 44321. And then your message that you send to that is just story, story, one word. And then you hit send, it'll send back a link. You click that link, and then you're on your way. And we have, thank you, Lisa Sanchez. Thank you, happy birthday. Sally Oberlindocker. I hope I said that right. You did. All right. Carrie Bruce and Terry Lawrence, who also is our treasurer. Um, Thank you for those birthday gifts. So the ultimate rite of passage is uh, one that one of our dear friends has gone through recently. Those of you who were here for our February show saw him speak and tell a story about being up on the roof, which was, uh, oh, we're gonna keep the screen down, if you would. We're just gonna move to a, a different program. He, t he let us know that he had terminal brain cancer. And the next month, just last month, uh, he was here and was able to share about his rebellion against terminal illness and was able to thank his um, hospice workers who came with him to the show. And so we've put together a little bit of a compilation of some moments that he's been with us almost for half of Story Story's life. Uh, and that's Dave Lee. So we hope you can enjoy this reflective through vision through one storyteller, Dave Lee.
our first featured storyteller who has been uh, part of Story Story Night for a while now. He started as a slammer, then his slam was selected to become a mini musical. Then he was in Slammer of the Year, and he was back as a featured storyteller, and now he's back again as a featured storyteller. Please welcome back Dave Lee. Decisions, decisions. You know, when I come to those big decision points in life, I like to look to the wisdom of the elders. You know, the philosophers, the shaman, the Zen masters, the yogis. There's one particular yogi I rely on a lot. He's very wise. That would be Yogi Berra. <laughs> you all know Yogi Berra. It ain't over till it's over. It's like deja vu all over again. But my favorite Yogi Berra-ism is this one. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. it makes me happy because I'm glad I chose the path I did. I'm glad it went the way it did. That was particularly true one year when I was having a particularly difficult time on a visit back home. I think it was in 2014. I was kind of stressed out. There was some family stress going on. It was just one of those times where I was thinking, God, I'm sure glad I'm going to be back home in Idaho soon. And I thought a little further. You know, I'm glad I have a home in Idaho. I'm glad I've had an opportunity to make my home in Idaho. And I'm glad I've had all these Western adventures that I've had. In short, I'm glad I chose the right path at that fork in the road. The nature of brain tumors is somewhat different than other cancers. With other cancers, I think they often say that five years is a sort of a clear mark. Brain cancer is not quite like that. I always have the possibility of something in the future hanging over my head. As each year goes by, I feel better about it, but I still have to get yearly MRIs. It's gotten to the point where that's pretty routine for me. But there's only three words I'm 
David, I um, so appreciate you sharing your story with us at Story Story Night. And of course, not every story gets turned into a mini musical. But I hope um, that in any case, whatever comes from that experience that, uh, like all of our storytellers, we hope that ultimately you feel heard. I just need a little comfort. Yeah. Dave, where are you? I don't know if you remember when you came back to your seat and I said, that was a great story as I was leaving. And I felt so connected to your story. And I thought, man, that's pretty amazing. I don't have a brain tumor. I never had cancer. But there are so many things you talked about that just hit me. Like, oh, I can relate to that. So thank you for inspiring me, because it's been a pleasure living inside your story for the last month. Thank you, guys. What's my next adventure? I don't know. That's the wonder of it. That's the beauty of it. Besides that, we can't predict the future, can we, right? Although there's one thing I think I can predict with reasonable confidence. Whatever my next adventure is, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to be wearing this. <laughs> service on the 22nd, that screen went by pretty fast. So if you are interested in attending that, you can write us at story at storystorynight.org, and we will forward that information to you. Uh, we're right there. Todd, that was us on stage back was. then, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, let's do this. Uh, I don't want, I'm not, let's, <laughs> I'm going to, I've never put this much pressure on a slammer before. In honor of Dave, Let's bring up a slammer, and this better be good. <laughs> uh, that's how it started with him before we turned his story into a musical. He just came up and shared his page one of two story. Uh, Lita hasn't done another musical uh, since the pandemic took us out, but um, we might have one again maybe next year. We will. Good. And then to come on stage now, I, I'm not sure if this is the right way to say this. It sounds super cool. Sounds like you could be an Afrosonics if you wanted to. It's Dre Denise. All right. Okay. Five minutes, PG-13. This is terrifying, uh, and I don't want to let down Dave. Um, I think initially when I was putting my name in the box, I was going to tell a funny story and be a little light, but this has been kind of a dark day. Um, my brother and I just talked to the prosecutor's office about our uh, dad. I'm not going to get into specifics, but it was um, 
there's been some stuff going on. And so I figured I'd actually talk about what is essentially the most important stretch of my entire life. In the pandemic was difficult than everyone. We all felt trapped, but not everyone had a warden. I did. My dad used the pandemic as an opportunity to keep us trapped, to keep my brother and I stuck inside of a house that we did not want to be in and inside of a relationship that we felt absolutely trapped in our entire lives. I could not see my friends for six months at a time. I would get that one rare instance where I would get this little bout of hope and then I would be stuffed back into this house. So my mom's house, when I had the opportunity to go there, was a major refuge because I could just be okay, be myself, see people. Of course, I didn't tell my mom I was seeing people. Every night, I would just kind of sneak out, and then the next morning, I would appear back at 7 a.m., say I was going for a walk, and that would be it. But one night, that was not enough to cover it. I came back in the house, and there she was just peering at me, and I knew that I messed up. But I didn't, I wasn't scared because of her. I was scared because her being there meant she was going to tell my dad. And if that happened, something bad was going to happen. And so she looks at me and she says, I'm not mad at you. I just want to know where you are. I care about you. And that was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> Caring about you? What? And I realized right then and there that I have two options. I can continue to lie. I can say, no, mom, I was just out for a walk. Or I can say, mom, you can't tell dad. And I chose option B, and I, I, I broke down. I told her every single thing. I told her that we'd been hurt for the past 15 years. And she said, okay, I'm gonna get you out of there. And so we made a plan that next Thursday, I was gonna go there, I was gonna grab my things, and then I was gonna get out. We weren't gonna tell anybody. And the days go by, and I'm scared, and I'm starting to feel guilty because you know, that's what happens in an abusive relationship. You get the sense of codependence. And that guilt came to such this, this rising position that my dad could tell that something was wrong. And the last thing he ever said to me when I was going to bed the night before was, Something's up. I'll talk to you in the morning. He never talked to me because that very morning, when he was driving my brother to school, he got a DUI. And it was like the universe was just throwing us a freebie because that meant that was his third one. He was gone. He was in jail, uh, you know, briefly imprisoned. And that was, you know, we took that opportunity immediately. We, my brother, who was not going to come with me, packed up all of our things, and we had a fleet of vans from friends just coming out right in front of our house, and we were finally free. And we did not give him a reason. We didn't contact him because we didn't owe him that. And the next morning, we're sitting in the house, in my mom's house, and my brother just says, it is so quiet. And I wanted to cry because we had not had a quiet night in 15 years. And I'm in this weird superposition where, you know, the growing still hurts. I'm 18. I've been out of that house for a year. And 
I don't know how to be a person yet, you know? When you don't have a, a good, positive role model, you are, you are in a position where you are starting miles and miles and miles behind everyone else. So right now, I'm just trying to make the growing hurt a little less. Wow. Dre, thank you for sharing. We're not here to compare stories or contrast them, but I'm just reflecting back to the way I started tonight's show, saying, my dad didn't teach me to shave. Okay. Little perspective there. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, too, when we saw the, the video of Dave's, um, all his stories that he told, um, is that the majority of those photos were taken by this lovely person right over here, Chelsea Harada. <laughs> who is causing Story Story Night a little bit of a growing pain because she's let us know that, she's been with me for the last six years, she's let us know that this is her last show with us phot photographing. She's moving on to more things. <laughs> I'm not gonna say they're bigger or better, but because I can't because of my ego. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much, Chelsea, for everything you've done for us. And now I would like to invite our featured storytellers back up on stage, if you would. And we are going to proceed to our last featured storyteller. Um, and Electricity. It's from the suit. <laughs> can't help it, sends sparks out. Uh, shared this, a version of the story at least back in 2011. Um, he's a member of the community that I enjoy as an actor in town because you always know when Ben's in the audience, he has this great encouraging laugh that lifts me through the, all the shows that I've had the pleasure of having him in the audience. And he also is a theater critic in town. You can read his reviews for different shows. and. Um, we're going to go back in time before any of that was happening, I think. Please welcome back to our stage, Ben Kemper. Thank you. Thank you. Growing up means different things for different people. I remember reading in my little junior National Geographic about the Maasai people of Kenya and Tanzania and how they expected their boys, in order to become men, to go out into the wilds and hunt, stalk, and kill a lion entirely by themselves. Now, I never had to do that. But the story stuck with me. I always expected adulthood to come charging at me out of the bush, and it would have teeth and claws and murderous intent. I was attracted to stories like these because when I was six years old, just knee-high to a grasshopper, a woman named Joy Steiner came to my school and changed my life. She was a professional storyteller, and I was so entranced by what she did and how she did it 
that I started stalking her as a tiny, tiny child from event to event to event. And instead of filling out a restraining order, she took me under her wing and taught me the art of storytelling. And this was very difficult for her because Joy and I were very different people. Joy was spontaneous. She could take a story and mold it to an occasion. I had to learn them all by rote. I had to make cassette tapes and listen to them. Joy was pugnacious. She always was standing up for herself, standing up for what was right. And I was terribly shy and hated conflict of any kind. And Joy loved children of all sorts. And I didn't. <laughs> I've never liked children. Ever since I was a tiny child, they were so loud, so chaotic, so bloodthirsty. <laughs> but under her tutelage, I became a storyteller. I would tell at my school, and I would tell at other kids' schools, and I would tell at museums and libraries and retirement centers. And eventually, the word got out all the way to the ears of a man named Al Blank. Some of you may know him. Al invited me to come tell stories in Shanghai, China. He was the head librarian of an institution called SCIS, Shanghai Community International Schools, which were three different campuses spread throughout the cities of Shanghai and Hongzhou. And they served kids aged kindergarten through 12th grade, seniors in high school that were the children of expatriates who worked in those cities from all over the world. And they had a wonderful education, but they had never seen a storyteller. And Al thought it would be a good idea to bring this skinny kid from Idaho all the way to Shanghai to tell for them. And of course I was terrified, and of course I doubted it, but I thought, this is my chance. This is my metaphorical lion hunt. I will go out into the wilds and I will come back a storyteller and a man in my own right. But little did I know, I would not be meeting a lion out in the wilds. I would be meeting three. The first one found me in the cafeteria. At the first school, they had asked me to stand against the wall of the kitchen and would bring in the grades one by one and line them up on the floor. And I was telling them the story of Stromboli Baboli, the Italian ogre. Stromboli with his hairy, hairy, curly pigtail and his furry, furry legs. And instead of feet, he had hooves. And just as I was getting into the rhythm and the flow of the story, a kid raised his hand from the middle and said, excuse me, what's a hoof? Well, these were kids from all over the world. English was sometimes their second, their third, their fourth language, and I had to stop and figure, well, what is a hoof when you get down to it? <laughs> and as the story was drifting further and further away and I was trying to grasp back to where it was, the dishwasher in the kitchen behind me started up, a colossal dishwasher an industrial dishwasher, a dishwasher that went ang, 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 ang. And while I was trying to get the story back and still figure out what a hoof was, 
a door opened on the far side of the cafeteria and a troop of kitchen workers came out carrying laden bins full of silverware and plates. And they didn't choose to cross all the way around the seated kids. The first one got right up on the stage and walked right in front of me. And then another, and another, and another. And the story was completely gone from my mind. And I was just standing there watching this parade go past me until finally, as one mounted the stage, I turned to her and said, I am Stromboli Boboli the Ogre, and I will eat you up. And she looked at me, and she stepped off the stage, and she led the rest of her fellows all the way around the audience. And was it rude? Yes. And was it inconsiderate? Yes. And was it expedient? Also, yes! First lion defeated! <laughs> hmm. The second one I met when I was upgraded to the auditorium to perform for the high schoolers. High schoolers are, are a very difficult audience. Most of them never want you to know that they have enjoyed anything ever at any point in their lives. And I was used to that, even though I had not entered high school myself. I was this weird, awkward, pimply pre-freshman. And I was watching, right where Al is sitting now, a kid, front and center, really not enjoying himself at all. He had bright red hair, thick dark glasses, a little chin shrub, and he'd worked himself into a knot of discontent. And when it came time for the question and answer portion, he raised his hand and in a perfect German accent asked me, so, since storytelling is, to all intents and purposes, a dead art form, <laughs> what do you really intend to do with your life when you grow up? Now, I hate conflict. And I could never aspire to be as erudite, as cool, as German as this kid. But he had impugned my honor, impugned the thing that I cared about most of all. So I looked that ginger lion right in the eye, and I planted my feet, and I raised my voice to say, actually, storytelling is going through a renaissance in the United States. There are festivals that draw thousands of people from across the country. Professional storytellers tell in all 50 states. And more than that, people from New York City to my hometown of Boise, Idaho, will come together in a room and they will share stories with each other. They choose to do this. So I think storytelling is alive and well, and I'm going to keep doing it. And he sunk two inches in his chair. Second lion, vanquished! The third one mauled me. It was my last performance at the last school for the audience that I feared more than any other, first graders. 
and what happened next, I blame entirely on myself because I was so afraid of them that I always chose when going before the first graders to tell big exciting stories with lots of gestures so that I could keep their attention and keep them as far away from me as possible. And I was telling them a folk tale from Nigeria, from the Yoruba, the story of the Oroku man, a giant all made out of wood who stalks the roads at night with his hard, hard Iroku wood club and likes nothing better to come, than to come up on the unsuspecting and bang, bash them over the head. And the story had gone well and I was finished and the first graders hadn't attacked me. And so I was not expecting it when one little boy raised his hands and says, sir, thank you for the story. Can I give you something? And I said, yes, like a fool. <laughs> and he came up out of his seat and he walked up to me and I leaned down to look at him and he looked me right in the face and said, Bang! went the Oroko Club and I went down and the rest of the class rose up and swarmed me. All of them pummeling with their tiny little fists shouting, Bang! with the Oroko Club! Bang! with the Oroko Club! Bang! with the Oroko Club! The teachers were of course on the sidelines laughing. And I lay there thinking, is this how I die today? But finally the bell rang and the swarm lifted up and departed. And I discovered that I was lying there on the floor of their classroom laughing. It was fine. They were just kids. They were playing a game, something that I had never had the courage to do, inflict violence on a complete stranger. But they had certainly enjoyed the story. <laughs> Third lion, gone. And so I came back to Boise, a storyteller in my own right. And like I promised that German kid, I have kept telling ever since, barring a global pandemic or two. But just a week ago, I was back in a Boise elementary school for the audience that I once feared most, first graders. <laughs> and we got along just fine. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm so happy that you're still telling stories. That's so cool. Uh, we tried to do a little bit of a this is your life moment right here since we knew the story. I actually talked to Joy. Uh, she no longer lives in Boise, but she was super excited that you're still sharing stories. And um, we invited Al Blank, who I would acknowledge now, and you would be surprised that he was here, except that he sat dead center in the front row. <laughs> And it's also April, and I can see every single face in this room. <laughs> but here he is, the guy who got this all started. Thank you, Al. Um, 
<laughs> and Al has also shared as a featured storyteller on this stage a number of times and has also been featured on our radio show, which has been really cool. Uh, it does remind me actually of a story that synthesizes the two of you together because I went to Shanghai in this horrible, uh, uh, it was supposedly a television show that they were filming there using puppetry. And they assembled a troop of us to go over to Shanghai and do this show. And our crew, no one spoke English. Um, the th studio was incredibly dirty. There were things falling from the ceiling. Um, fires kept erupting uh, along around the set because they were using clothespins, wooden, wooden clothespins to attach gels to hot lights that were like 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit and they would just burst into flame randomly. And one of the other puppeteers standing next to me looked over at one of the crew members who had this long hair growing from his chin. And, you know, we just crashed in there. We didn't know the culture. But that, uh, that puppeteer, young puppeteer, just reached over, grabbed that hair and pulled it out. <laughs> Which we learned later that that is a, I don't know the appropriate, it was a wisdom hair, I think. And it is a, it's, it's a sign of your, of wisdom, of growing, and of, and being wise. And he, the person was so shocked and stunned, actually, we, they vanished and we never saw them again the rest of the, I, I to this day, I have no idea what happened to him. Except that he isn't as wise, unfortunately. <laughs> Let's bring up a story slammer, shall we? We've got a bunch of people in here that share a story tonight. Five minutes, PG-13, your story told from your point of view. Um, it's nice if it has events in it as opposed to only ideas. Who do we got now? We have, uh, there are two ways I could say this last name. I'm gonna say Patty Bowen. There we go. I was about to say Patty Bowen, if that, no one answered to that one. Which is right, is it Bowen or Bowen? Bowen. Bo oh, well that's why you didn't come up, because I didn't... It's the jacket. <laughs> Welcome, Patty. Clothespins. <laughs> Fires everywhere. Hello, wow, we've got five minutes. Let's get down to it. Um, so, this is a coming of age story about kind of that period where you lo no longer are kind of a child to your parents. I mean, still a child, but like less of a child and become more of an adult. Um, so it was the Christmas um, where both of my siblings were coming back. I was 15 years old. Um, my sister was coming from college. My brother was coming from college. And that meant to my parents, they were done parenting. They'd gotten two kids into college. The other one would get there eventually. Um, and so, to mark this momentous occasion, we decided to do what any Idaho family would do and go out to the desert with all of our guns and shoot at random things <laughs> and get so drunk, so drunk. Um, <laughs> and so um, I was 15, I was, a, I was a good kid, a lame kid, um, and so I hadn't drank ever before. So this was my first experience drinking in my entire life, very excited. 
Um, and so we, we drive out to the desert, we put stuff all over the place, we're shooting, my brother has a bottle of whiskey, we're just taking shots left and right. Um, my stepdad, my mom, my brother and me, we're all just hammered. Um, and then my sister is a designated driver. Um, and so in the middle of this, my brother's like, oh shoot, I forgot. Today is the day that my girlfriend of nine years is uh, going to be singing at church and she's gonna be the person who's like in front leading the choir for Christmas Day, we have to be there. Um, so so we're, all, we're all very drunk at this point, so we, we pack up all the guns, we pack up the whiskey, put it under the seat of the car, and then we drive all the way back into town and pile into the back row of church, hoping, praying, that no one notices that we are drunk off our hats at Mass on the Lord's Day. Um, and so, we get into mass, it's, it's going okay. It starts to get, go really poorly when my stepdad, very tall, very rotund man, falls asleep within 10 minutes and starts snoring. Um, that's the first sign that we failed. The second sign is we're, you know, the choir is going. Um, Katie, my brother's former girlfriend, is singing beautifully. Um, and I'm... I'm over here, I've got my songbook, and I am, I am yodeling, because I'm doing this. I'm, I'm so, so drunk that I, I can't stand up steady. So I'm, I'm moving back and forth as I'm singing, and it's getting really bad. And my sister is getting madder and madder. And this whole time, we look over and we had an exchange student, a Guatemalan exchange student named Raul. Um, and he had obviously come with us to the desert to get the Idaho experience. Um, and we can't find him. We're looking for him. <laughs> Raul is gone. And, and so the rest of Mass goes through. My sister is building up anger. And Raul is nowhere to be found. Um, and so Mass ends. Uh, Katie takes my brother aside. They're having a very curt conversation. Um, and and we're, we're circling the building. And, and after about like 15, 20 minutes, we finally find Raul. And we're like, Raul, where did you go? And he, he looks over at me and he's like, lo siento, me dormí. Which is, he had gone into the bathroom and fell asleep on the toilet um, and been there for the entirety of mass. Um, and so we wrap up, we get into the car. And so now we have you know, this great family tradition, um, but I do think my sister still holds it against us to this day. Uh, she has not been back home for Christmas for five years now. Um, <laughs> Unfortunate, but the growing pains, right? Thank you so much. So, so wait, now you have this great family tradition? <laughs> do, you, do you mean to say you go out into the desert with your guns and beer on an annual basis and then attend mass? Or, I see, okay. Wow, okay, Idaho, God and guns. That's... Well, we try to pull out all the stops for our birthday shows, so we're gonna bring the screen down. And we have a live on Zoom from uh, Guadalupe, what? Guatemala. Live from Guatemala, Raul. There's no way I could do that. Are you kidding me? Ha, I, 
didn't even know she was going to share a story. I've never even heard of Raul. I didn't even say the country right. Okay, let's get another slammer so I can get myself in some more trouble. <laughs> While I frantically look for Raul. <laughs> we have him on FaceTime Messenger. Oh my gosh, we are never going to get through all of these. We're going to be here all night. Well, all right, it's heritage evening because coming to the mic is the OG herself, Jessica Holmes. Look at all these instruments that are playing nothing for you. <laughs> I love it. This is amazing. That outfit is amazing. <laughs> I walked here, and as I walked in, I realized that I was pitting out in my dress, and I was like, this is the perfect coming of age. Um, <laughs> uh, I had to tell this story because Mr. Blank is here, and really, Story Story and I would not be here without Mr. Blank and I will tell you how. <laughs> when, when I was a, a high schooler, I don't know if you can imagine this, but I was a real dork. <laughs> I'm so cool now. Um, <laughs> my, my superpower then was invisibility. Um, I, I prided myself in no one noticing me. I used to wear these big oversized overalls and white t-shirts and just slumped around the school like this. That was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> My, my home life was, I realize now, not the best coming of age story. My dad was really addicted to meth and my mom was this evangelical Christian. So it was this strange dynamic, strange intellectual dynamic. <laughs> and I was just trying to get by unscathed. And um, the thing about not I, I was a really shy kid. I didn't really ever talk to anybody, which was my superpower, as I said. <laughs> but the thing about that is, um, oh, it's just it's just a tough life, not you know, not ever being seen by anyone. And the first person who really saw me, I feel like, was. Al Blank, and Al Blank was a librarian at Bora High School at the time, and um, he started the coolest club in school, which was the Essay Club. And I love telling people I was in the Essay Club in high school, because even though it sounds super dorky, it really was the coolest thing in my life. Um, Al, he, he went around to English teachers and just asked, is there somebody there that stands out to you in your class? And for the first time in my life, I feel like someone saw me, my English teacher saw me, and he, she told Al Blank about me. And um, I was invited to this group of kids, <laughs> handpicked by their English teachers, um, by Al Blank. And I still remember that that first meeting that we had, um, just this ragtag group of like six kids. Uh, there was one aspiring model. Um, there was one wonderful Jewish girl, uh, a really intellectual kid. 
It was a strange group of kids <laughs> all sitting together in the, the Bora High School library. And Al, he decided that um, we would all read essays on a theme and talk about them over tea every Sunday. <laughs> which sounds so dorky, but uh, the greatest day of my high school life was the day that Al Blank would personally come around to our classrooms and deliver our packet of essays. He put a little sticker on the manila envelope <laughs> and I felt so special. And um, we talked about the themes ranged from everything from like I remember the abortion was a hot topic, uh, still is, <laughs> who knew? Uh, we talked about food, I loved the food one. Um, just all these different themes, and it was the first time that I feel like anyone cared to hear something that I had to say, like that care, they care he cared about our intellectual lives in a way that no one else did, and it, it changed, each one of us, it changed our entire life being in that club and knowing Al Blank. <laughs> um, I still remember in college, I got a call from Al and he left a message on our answering machine. My roommate was like, we got the weirdest, we got the weirdest um, spam today. He was just like, this really deep voice was like, this is Mr. Blank. <laughs> it's obviously not a real person, it's a real person. <laughs> I just, I'm not sure Al, how to tell you how much you mean to me, but that weird model girl and I are still best friends. That, that group, we're still so connected. Story Story Night, I never would have started without you. And I've never had the desire to be a mom, but I've always had the desire to be a mentor because of you. And I just had to tell this story to thank you for starting the seed of Story Story by just letting somebody share their thoughts on a theme, even when they seem like maybe they should just be part of the crowd. And you changed my whole life. So thank you, Al Blank. <laughs>bunch of people standing up behind you, Val. Uh, you didn't know that this was going to be This Is Your Life, actually. <clears throat> All right, who else has an Al Blank story? Let's get that coming up here next. Uh, let's do one more story slam, shall we? Uh, boy, this night went by fast, but I feel like we got to do, do at least one more story because we really got to roll. We, you know, it's, I want to hear something more about Al. Whoops, I took three. <laughs> All right, looks like we have a hyphenated name, which is double the story. Jenny Mundy Castle. Oh, she's right here. 
It could be okay, my doctor told me. It could be. They could be okay, my doctor told me. She was talking about my breasts, and this is PG-13, because it has to do with breastfeeding, which has to do with breasts. And unfortunately, breasts are often not talked about as PG-13. And that hurts all of us. It hurts our children because we can't talk about breasts. So my nipples are inverted. And I knew that this could be a problem when I had a child. I talked to my doctor about it. And she said, this could be OK. It might be OK they might be okay. And I'll make sure to schedule a lactation consultant for you. And she did. And my child was born old enough, you know, nine months, over nine months, as those of us who have had children know, nine months is a lie. Um, it's always more than nine months, right? So it was more than nine months, but she was full full term, she was small, and I have inverted nipples, and she was small. She was five pounds, six ounces, and the lactation consultant came to me, and she trained me, and she taught me all the things, all the things that if I were somewhere else, maybe my mother, my grandmother, my culture would have taught me about breastfeeding about how to do it, about how to help the child understand how to latch. And I couldn't latch, she couldn't latch, she didn't latch. And three days, she didn't latch. And the lactation consultant said, no, she's latching. And we went home. And she got smaller, and she screamed, and she screamed, and she screamed. And she did nothing but scream. And I didn't know anything about children, because this was my first child. And so. I thought that's what babies did. Babies cry, babies scream, that's it. And the three-day checkup came, and I took her in, and the doctor told me she's starving. She hasn't had anything to eat for three days. And the lactation consultant was wrong. She hadn't latched. My nipples, my breasts failed her. My body failed her. It was. My fault, that was my experience. I know that's not true intellectually, like that was not the reality of what had happened, but she was dying and it was my body's fault. That was my experience. And it was the fault of the world not having had an experience of someone showing me what it meant to truly latch, to truly breastfeed, to be told that a bottle is bad period, you can't formula feed, it's not okay. And I couldn't formula feed. 
And so they put her in the NICU, and I went into the NICU with her, and she was happy for the first time ever because they gave her a bottle of formula, and I was terrified of the formula. And it's like, why? Like, why was I terrified of the formula? Because she was starting to live, but the stories that I had heard, the story of breast is best, that's it. That's the only thing. And there's one way to mother. That one way to mother is a false truth. It is not true. There are a thousand ways to mother, and we need to understand that. We need to learn that. And I had to watch my baby almost die before I understood that there are a thousand ways to mother and that I'm okay, that I couldn't mother in the way that I saw mothering to be which was, you know, that picture, you guys know it, all of you know it, which is the baby at the breast and the mother looking down and that smile, and they both have that smile and the baby's just there. I had to fucking learn how to grieve that, sorry about that F word, sorry, I said it would be PG-13. <laughs> but I had to learn how to grieve that, I had to learn how to grieve that loss, and that was a loss. That was a loss to not be able to see my smiling baby at my breast, because my breast didn't work that way. I had to learn that that was okay. And I saw my baby in the incubator, and growing and learning, and, and, and gaining weight, and being okay, and learning that that was okay because it wasn't about me. That image, that image of the baby at my breast, that was about me. That was about me needing to hold her and needing to see myself being that mother. But she needed something else. We need to understand that when we bring babies, children into the world, that it has to be about them. It has to be about them, and we need to learn how to step outside of ourselves, and we need to understand that it's okay to grieve it, that we need to do that. We need to grieve the loss of ourselves when we become parents, because we have to let go of ourselves and our own needs. She's okay now, my daughter, she's 13. She's had some issues, she's, she's had some issues, she's had eyesight issues, things like that, as a result of having starved for three days. And I've learned, and I know now, that we just need to let it go. We need to let ourselves go, and that's what parenting means. And we need to stop shaming mothers, we need to stop shaming our ideas of what motherhood means, we need to stop shaming ourselves about what parenthood means because it means letting go. And that's all it means. Thank you, Jenny. Okay, we're gonna bring our screen down and um, that was just, for me, that is part of why I am so passionate about Story Story Night is 
those stories being shared and you think it's your own unique one only happened to me experience and then somebody else in the audience is like, oh, I, that happened to me too, or I didn't know anyone else thought that way. Um, same with reading books, really fun. Uh, so there come some new names. Kathy, thank you. Jeff, thank you. Bonnie, look, it's kind of exciting because they're being revealed by the screen. Uh, we're, we're, we're expanding our technology to reveal. Deborah K. Doe, Nate. Oh, I see. Doe, Nate. Very clever. <laughs> all right. This actually runs all the time, uh, 44321. Uh, if you want to become a story subscriber, you can hit that at story sub 44321. And we were going to show you the Idaho Gives uh, screen, which launches May 2nd through 5th, but I think we're going to skip that tonight. We're going to start our theme song, and I will say some thank yous. Um, stories come from the land as well as its people, and I want to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the Shoshone Bannock people. Story Story Night is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive funding from Boise City Department of Arts and History. Remember, you can listen to our podcasts from all our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or go to storystorynight.org and click on podcasts. We also have a radio show. It's Story Story Night on Stray Theater, which happens the Sunday before our live show from 5.30 to 6 on Radio Boise. And you can also see our shows on our YouTube channel. Thank you to our crew, technical director, podcast engineer, Stephen Baldessare. Thank you to our board president, Karen Valaket, who's been handling projections tonight. Dan Costello. And for the last time, our photographer, Chelsea Harada. Thank you to all our volunteers and our volunteer coordinator, Natalia Di Garcia. Thank you to our board of directors, our story subscribers, our camera operator, Stan Carey, and to Jump. Story, story night. Story, story, good night. Beginning, middle, now, at the end. Thank you to Jump and the crew here for hosting us. Join us next on June 28th for the launch of our summer season, The Wizard of Oz. Outdoors at the old Idaho Penitentiary. Authentic, inspiring, and very often spontaneous. So thank you, you shared your stories and you really listened. I might have come here as a stranger. That's what puberty does, folks. But now I'm leaving as a friend. And so the story doesn't end. Good night, everybody. See you next season. Thank you, Afrosonics.